You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. And welcome back to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast where we tell crime stories using our occupational knowledge of criminology and medicine. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you so much for tuning in to another Unsolved Mystery. Today, we are talking about the unsolved murder of 24-year-old realtor, Lindsay Buziak. Lindsay was a Canadian woman in Victoria, British Columbia. She was showing a house in a suburb of Victoria called Saanich on February 2nd, 2008, when she was murdered. She was lured to a home viewing by a man and a woman claiming they were wealthy and looking for a million-dollar home within 15 to 20 minutes of town. At this showing, she was attacked and violently murdered. The couple has never been identified, and her murder remains unsolved. This mystery woman contacted Lindsay in late January 2008, so about a week or two prior to the murder. She apparently used a fake name and had a strange accent. Lindsay believed the accent to be Mexican or Spanish, but this was actually the thing that made her the most suspicious was because she couldn't really put her finger on it and she believed it might have been fake. She found a house that she thought met the couple's needs. They wanted a million dollar home. They wanted it to be moving ready, vacant, new, and out of town in Victoria. The viewing was scheduled for February 2nd, 2008 at 5.30 p.m. Before this happened, Lindsay and Jason had gone out to eat and the bill was paid by 424, so about an hour before the scheduled appointment at 530 on February 2nd. They left in separate cars because Lindsay wanted to go home and change before the showing and Jason was going to pick up one of his friends at an auto shop. Jason left the auto shop with his friend at 530, so he was running late to sort of keep tabs on Lindsay because the appointment was at 530. This mystery couple that she was meeting had parked at a nearby street called Torquay Avenue, and they had walked to the cul-de-sac where the house was. The couple was witnessed by a few people who described them as very well-dressed, the man being white, six feet tall, with dark hair, and a light or medium-colored jacket. The woman was described as blonde, between 35 to 45 years old, and wearing a designer dress with a distinct pattern with the colors dark pink, white and black. Jason and his friend parked outside of the house at 545. At this time, Jason saw a figure of a male through the glass of the front door, possibly two figures. 10 minutes later at 555, Jason decided to park at the neighboring street where he sat for another 10 minutes. During this time of waiting, he texted Lindsay at 538, but she never opened the message. A pocket dial occurred shortly after this at 541, which police believe occurred as she was being attacked. This apparent pocket dial was placed to a friend that she hadn't spoken to in a long time, and all that this friend could hear on the call were muffled voices. Jason drove back to the house and attempted to enter it, but the front door was locked. He could see Lindsay's shoes through the door, but he saw no movement inside. No one answered his repeated knocks on the door. So Jason called 911. His colleague found a gap in the fence to get into the backyard, where they found the back door wide open. Jason told the 911 operator that they were entering the house and hung up. 
Jason was led in by his colleague through the front door and they ran upstairs and found Lindsay laying in a pool of blood on the floor in the main bedroom. Jason called 911 again and shortly after emergency services arrived. Lindsay was pronounced dead at the scene by responding paramedics. She had been stabbed multiple times. Since she had no defensive wounds, it appeared as though she were ambushed, probably attacked from behind. She was not robbed or sexually assaulted. According to information gleaned on the Dr. Phil show, Lindsay was stabbed 54 times. Her breasts were mutilated and her throat cut to the point where she was nearly decapitated and her spinal cord was severed. Her father's opinion was that this was a personal attack and an execution because Lindsay, quote, saw something she shouldn't have. He also asserted that he believes Jason knows what happened. The bad feeling that Lindsay had about this showing turned out to be a gruesome reality. Police believe that the killers were going to flee the scene through their front door, but instead ran out the back door when they saw Jason reappearing around 6 or 6.05. They presumably ran to their car on Torquay Drive and escaped. Investigators made attempts to track down the phone number that was used to call Lindsay to make the showing appointment. And they determined that the woman who called her used a burner phone that was bought several months before in Vancouver under the name Paolo Rodriguez, which is believed to be a fake name. The calls to Lindsay were the only activity on the phone, and the phone was deactivated shortly after the murder. And the day before the murder, the phone pinged on the ferry from Vancouver. Lindsay had been dating Jason for about a year. They lived together in a home that was owned by Jason's mother, Shirley. Since Lindsay's murder, Jeff, her father, has been a most staunch and steadfast advocate for his daughter. He does not take no for an answer. He is very critical of law enforcement and of the people that he believes have a role in Lindsay's death. He also leads an annual walk in Saanich, advocating for arrests being made in the case of Lindsay Buziak's murder. Mr. Jeff Buziak joins us today for this episode. He was gracious enough to link up with me. This is actually going to be the first part of a multi-part series because of all of the time and information that he provided this show. It should be noted before I run this interview that all persons in Canada are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law and opinions expressed by people on our show do not necessarily reflect those of production. To start us off, Mr. Buziak tells us about his beloved daughter, Lindsay. How can I describe her? You know, she's my loving daughter. She was an extremely nice person. She was very loving, very caring. She valued her friends, girlfriends especially. They were super important to her and uh, also her sister, her mother, of course, and daddy. You know, all around, just a great gal, pretty high energy, quite emotional. Uh, She could be fiery, but she was just nice, really nice nature, loving, kind, and uh, very friendly, very open, warm. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I just loved her dearly. Did she always plan to follow your footsteps and become a real estate agent? No, that evolved on her own. I didn't discourage it, but I didn't encourage it. We never really talked about it till she brought it up. And 
kind of discovered it on her own. She looked around at a few different things and then realized that's what she wanted to do. And it sort of evolved. She didn't just say, hey, I'm going to be a real estate agent and go take the course. She worked at a real estate office. She worked with some developers. Um, and then she got involved with uh, on-site sales. And then that transitioned into becoming a real estate agent. What happened was when she was taking her real estate course, she was taking it at the same time as uh, Jason's younger brother, Ryan. So that's who she met. Uh, Ryan was quite um, enthralled with her and uh, wanted to study with her and, you know, things like that. And wanted to introduce her to the mom and you have to come and work with us. So it kind of evolved to that. Um, and then, uh, of course, Jason saw her and uh, was very interested and started pursuing her. And, uh, and then she went to work for their mom. What were your first impressions of Jason? I wasn't really that impressed, but um, I um, asked her what was going on. She kind of just said, you know, I don't know. It just sort of happened. And I said, so what are you doing? And uh, she um, wasn't quite sure. She just said she was a bit confused and it, the relationship just kind of evolved. There have been some reports that Lindsay potentially had plans to leave that relationship. Is that rumor or has that been confirmed? Well, I know what was going on because I talked to her frequently. Uh, she was uh, not happy in the relationship and wanted to exit the relationship. And uh, she was working at doing that. But um, she decided to stay until... Uh, the first part of March, because she had a fair number of deals closing in or around March 1st. And she felt that if she left the relationship early, those the payment from those deals would be jeopardized by uh, Shirley Zalo. And so she decided to stay until the deals closed. She was leaving Jason. She had had enough. She wasn't interested anymore. And uh, she was just putting in time. Unfortunately, that was a decision she made, which wasn't the right one. We had talked about her exiting the relationship and the options that she had to do that. And uh, she decided on the one that we discussed that she would wait till those deals closed. And then um, she felt comfortable at that time to leave the relationship and be on her own. He was careful. He was a big man. You know, he's... 6'3", 245 at the time, I believe, is roughly what he was. He was working out a lot. Uh, she found out he was taking steroids and selling them, which really infuriated her. But by that point, she really just didn't care anymore. She just wanted out. And yeah, you know, she could feel a bit intimidated by him, but she was a pretty feisty little thing and didn't have a lot of fear and very confident in her abilities there were things going on there that she didn't want to talk to me about completely. Um, and um, she felt she was going to deal with them on her own and had told me that, um, you know, I'm handling it. And of course, you know, I didn't want to interfere and be the bossy dad. So I said, okay, fine. How often did you and Lindsay stay in touch we spoke often, sometimes numerous times a week, sometimes, you know, maybe once. But yeah, we spoke often. I still have the same relationship with her sister. 
you know, we talk regularly. It's a very warm, loving, you know, it's not a confrontational thing with my daughters at all. It's very loving, warm, just discussing hi and how are you doing? How is work? You know, those sorts of things. What are you up to? It's really nice. It's really, really nice. And I, I really miss that with Lindsay, of course. How long before that horrible day in February did she tell you that she saw something that she shouldn't have? Yeah, it was in mid-December when we had that discussion. She came to visit me in Calgary. I was living about a thousand kilometers or 600 miles away from where Lindsay was living. And uh, she came out uh, mid-December specifically to talk to me about, you know, exiting the relationship. Uh, because she felt she couldn't talk to her mom about that, which surprised me a bit because, you know, they're very close as well. But I understood. So that's what it would have been. At that time, she also also mentioned that she saw something she shouldn't have seen. So we didn't talk at length about it because she just said she wasn't going to talk to me about it at that time. She was dealing with it. I mean, when you're talking at the time, with someone about that you're not thinking oh shit they're gonna get murdered even though i did say to her at the time i said you know if anything should happen to you you should make sure you tell somebody and probably be a good idea to tell me and uh she said i will dad i will just not right now had she told you about the steroid use and selling or was that something that you found out after both In hindsight now, do you have a sense of what she may have been referring to? Well, I certainly do. I've had 14 years to contemplate it under agony. So it was was something that was beyond just, you know, everybody thinks, oh, she saw drugs and money. Nah, you know, pretty young girls see that when they're growing up. She had seen drugs and money before. It didn't interest her, either of them. I mean, she wanted money to live a nice life but uh that whole drug trade thing was not her deal at all she she disliked drug dealers and wasn't a user what she saw that she shouldn't have seen certainly in my opinion after 14 years of contemplating it knowing her very very well it was something that involved people that she was currently in close proximity with And it was something that involved probably important people that shouldn't be doing what they were doing. And it was beyond, you know, drugs and money. It was other dastardly stuff that involved so-called innocent folks that weren't so fucking innocent. And so that was the result of her death, as far as I'm concerned, was the people that she knew that information about uh, just decided that she was too high of a risk and she needed to be terminated. And so it was kind of convenient in a number of ways to get rid of her, if you want to think from the dark side. With the timeline of what we know about the planning of the perpetrators, purchasing that burner phone with that phone only being used to contact and lure Lindsay it seems that this was in the works for a period of time and possibly coincided with whatever she saw well that's one way of looking at it certainly you can you can make things fit a theory so 
was that the case or was it the case that you know bad people buy burner phones just to have so did they buy that particular phone because they wanted to murder Lindsay, or were they just buying a burner phone anyhow and they just happened to use that one that they bought that particular day to do Lindsay? so you know that's different ways you can look at the whole burner phone thing if it was purchased for Lindsay's murder there's things you can put together and that Paulo Rodriguez, I was told by a linguist, is a common Brazilian Portuguese name that would be like John Smith in England. Uh, in Brazil, Paulo Rodriguez is the same. It's very common. So it could have been, when people are making up false names, they usually use something that's familiar to them, right? Not something totally foreign unless they've sat down and analyzed everything. You know, the street that the house was on was Portuguese, D'Souza. Uh, the owner of the murder home, Joe D'Souza, is Portuguese, and he's good friends with Shirley Zalo's boyfriend. There's all kinds of connections if you want to connect things to make a theory. Lindsay had told a few people, apparently, that she was suspicious by the calls placed from this burner phone. First, that they had called her personal cell phone rather than her work number, but also because of an accent that either she couldn't identify or maybe thought was fake. Did she tell you these concerns or, or somebody else? Yeah, I'm aware of the concerns and the, the whole cell phone thing. That's just an urban myth that people have made up. So that's a false piece of information out there because her cell phone was prominently displayed on all her advertising. So it wasn't like it was any secret thing that you couldn't find. If you Google their name, you saw her cell phone. So that's all bunk that's out there about her, somebody finding out her cell phone number. Uh, but yeah, she was very suspicious about the calls she received from the people. She just sensed something wasn't right, right from the start because the accent didn't seem to be real. They were struggling with the accent as far as she was concerned. The accent didn't make sense to her because it was a bit awkward. So when I discussed it with her, she said, you know, it kind of sounds like Mexican, but not really Mexican. She said, you know, it's something else. And she said, almost like they're trying to fake it or put it on. So that alerted her. And so then she was quite suspicious of the phone call. It was troubling her a bit. So, you know, we had that discussion. So I asked her to check the people out more, which she was doing at her office. And uh, she did ask the lady how she got her name. And the lady said that uh, she was referred by another client of Lindsay's and she told Lindsay the client's name. So that put her at ease a little bit. So she was kind of conflicted with this whole feeling uneasy about it, but yet there was other information that seemed very legitimate. So two things I point out was one, this client that they dropped the name of a client. So Lindsay phoned the client, but the clients were away on holidays. She told me that. So that's a true part of the story. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. And uh, the other part that I find very interesting is the discussions Lindsay had with the woman were very clear that the woman Lindsay was speaking to 
had a very good understanding how corporate transfers work in real estate. You probably don't know unless you've had one. Uh, most real estate agents don't even know exactly how a corporate transfer works unless they've dealt with them because it's a specific kind of routine that they follow when they're engaged in a corporate transfer. So that could be government or larger corporations. They have a certain way they do them. And these people describe that. So, of course, now in retrospect, I realized that whoever was setting her up had an intimate knowledge of how a corporate transfer works. So this wasn't dummies off the street or some hired thug to go kill her. So they had either experienced one because they were involved or they were real estate oriented people who knew about corporate transfer. That corporate transfer detail is very interesting because it can certainly rule out a lot of people that wouldn't have any business knowing about that. Was there anything else, anything that stood out that could help identify or distinguish this person? No, not really. Not from Lindsay's perspective. She just felt, you know, it was her instinct that was screaming at her. Something's not right here. Who knows individually what triggers that within us? I think in women, they have a more acute ability to sense that than guys do a lot of the time. Yeah, unfortunately, she didn't be more cautious and, and really listen to her instincts. But uh, nonetheless, she was aware that something wasn't right. and It probably got started by the accent, which was weird. And kind of the timing of events were a bit strange, too, because she was supposed to be going to Vancouver for this uh, stagette, they call it, for one of her girlfriends. And she also had a girlfriend having a birthday party in Victoria. But I think especially the one in Vancouver was quite interesting because her boyfriend, Jason, was really upset about her going to Vancouver. He was a super possessive, jealous type, you know, controlling, that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, he thought she was going to Vancouver and have some affair and fool around and all that stuff to the point where, you know, he harassed her enough that she phoned her girlfriend in Vancouver and just said, oh, God, he's driving me nuts. You know, is it OK if I bring him along? And, you know, the girl was like, eh, you know, it's the girl's night out, like we're going VIP and having some fun and all that stuff. And I guess the, the girls just said, you know, whatever. So. You know, that was upsetting her because, you know, it was kind of for her, something was setting all that off. She's just like, what the hell's going on? You know, I was supposed to be going to Vancouver. I get this call at the last moment about this corporate transfer from some weird lady with an accent. And I'm having enough stress deciding whether I'm going to Vancouver or I'm going to be at my girlfriend's birthday party here in Victoria. So I discussed that with her and, um, she really wanted to go to Vancouver. It was going to be a lot of fun and see some girlfriends that she hadn't seen for a while. And uh, yeah, they would be going out partying and it would be a lot of fun for them. So I told her, well, it was still possible that, uh, you know, she could grab a late ferry and go over there, you know, go to the Stagette and then fly back to the next morning or come back the next morning and do business. So I guess when you meet the clients and find out what's going on, you can decide whether you can fit that in or not. So we decided, you know, what route she would take to get to the ferry and that sort of stuff. 
regarding her her gut instinct or that intuition that made her feel concerned that something wasn't quite right and then even took that extra step to have her boyfriend surveil or to at least visit and be there during the showing it seemed like she tried to do everything she could short of not going what do you make of the timeline of Jason's whereabouts that day he's with Cohen and he arrives and then moves his car. Did he see any vehicle? Because you'd think being parked on D'Souza Place and then moving onto Torque, that he would have seen the perpetrator's vehicle. Jason's never really wanted to talk to me much about what went on around the time of the murder. Cohen has, of course. Jason was, uh, he's a weird duck. His movements during that day really troubled me because there were movements, as far as I'm concerned, movements of convenience. If he adored her and loved her as he states he did, what do you think he would have been doing when she virtually raised her voice at me that he was going to be there because I was getting concerned at that point and even said, Damn it, Linz, do I have to fly out there and be there with you? She's like, Daddy, he's going to be there. Like, Jason's going to be there. Like, okay, I just need to make sure that's clear. So when Lindsay would have expressed herself that strongly towards me, that meant she had him lined up to be there. And if he was a loving boyfriend, he would have fucking been there. Like any loving boyfriend would have. He would have been there long before 5.30, not fucking around somewhere at a detail shop that caters to gangsters having a beer in the back as if he didn't have a care in the world. It's all bullshit. And then we hear these bullshit stories from that family about, oh, well, he had some documents she needed to sign. Well, realtors don't sign documents. So they changed that story when I came out publicly and said, realtors don't sign documents, surely. Well, well, there, there, were, there was a time constraint on it. And I said, he was a realtor. He could have dealt with it. She was showing houses like that doesn't make sense. And you don't necessarily have to deliver documents. If there's a time constraint, you phone the clients. If you've ever bought a house, your real estate agent will phone you, certainly in Canada, and say, hey, they signed the deal or they signed the extension or they signed the offer or they signed your removal of the conditions. We have a deal now. I'll get you the papers later. I'm showing houses right now. So that was bullshit as well. So all the excuses coming out of that family who were all real estate agents, the mom, both sons, and Jason also was a mortgage broker at the time who was offering financing to get more arranged mortgage for any of Lindsay's clients who needed financing. So that would have been his job to be there, meet the clients. Do you require financing? I can do that for you. He failed miserably on everything on purpose, as far as I'm concerned. And so his movements that day being late, uh, the bullshit texting, uh, the parking away from the house, 
sitting waiting, all their stories don't make sense. So we hear stories of, oh, we saw people in the window as we drove by. And then there was another story from the police about, oh, the people were walking out and they quickly closed the door. Jason thought the appointment was starting. That's bullshit. They're experienced. If people are walking out, how do you equate that to starting? Leaving is starting? Yeah, that makes real good sense. So, you know, it's all bullshit that comes out of that family as far as I'm concerned. And so the wait was convenience. He parked in one spot, waited for 10 minutes, turned around, went out, parked on the street, waited for another 10 minutes. Obviously, you can look at it like, you know, they keep saying, oh, well, you know, he didn't want to interfere. He was supposed to fucking be there. He was there to provide financing if they required it to meet the clients. Number one, he was supposed to be there because she was scared shitless. So where the hell was he? Oh, I'm waiting. I'm late. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. He's trying to portray this thing about, you know, he's Mr. Cool, nonchalant, you know, no big deal. So then when he decides to go, well, let's, you know, go have a look. And he phones 911. Well, Mr. Cools, don't phone 911. That's emotional panic. Who are you? Are you Mr. Cool? Or are you Mr. Emotionally Panicky? At your six foot three, 245 or 35, wherever he is, ex semi pro hockey player. Oh, he's scared all of a sudden. Who the fuck is scared at six foot three, 245? You kick the fucking door in. It's like, where's my girl? Why did he text her and say, are you okay? Like, why, why would you do that? Have you had boyfriends? If they're pissed off because they're waiting for you for 20 minutes, are they saying, are you okay? Not any guys I know. I'm sure there's guys out there that do that. Six foot three, 245 guy with a temper. He doesn't, oh, are you okay? He's like, what the fuck's going on? Like, uh, how much longer are you going to be? Like, do I have to wait here another hour? You know, guys get pissed off waiting. Like, don't give me that shit. And he was someone that felt threatened and felt the need to protect her going out with her girlfriends for a bachelorette party or birthday party. Right. Here's a situation where she actually feels like she could be in danger and now he's being blasé. Right. And after she's murdered, he's Mr. Happy. He was actually reveling in the notoriety of being involved with the murders. Like, oh, well, this is cool. I'm driving my mom's sports car, man. This fuck you. This car is fucking cool. I feel so good driving this car. I was like, buddy, your girlfriend just got fucking murdered. Hello? He's phoning Lindsay's girlfriends, asking them to go out and party and drink and tells one of them who's fucking pregnant, hey, maybe we can snuggle later, you know what I mean? Like, nut case. He's hitting on her girlfriends the night after, days later. Yeah, where are those stories? Nobody seems to want to talk about those stories. They must have been so disgusted. Absolutely. Scared, scared and disgusted. 
mourning, like devastated. He's done nothing to help. They think helping is like answer the phone when the police call. Oh, we've done everything they've asked us. No, you haven't. They were very uncooperative initially. The night of, so, you know, Jason and Cohen were taken in by police and held overnight. Well, that particular night, Jason's mom was busy phoning all over the city trying to find a defense lawyer. What do you need a lawyer for? Did Cohen, when he spoke to you, did he, in his opinion, find Jason's behavior strange? Yeah, very, very strange. And the mother, too. Cohen is just totally broken by this whole thing. Totally ruined his life completely. What do you think his role was? Alibi convenience. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't want to be there. Jason was bugging him all day to go for dinner. And he was like, oh, I want to go home, be with my wife and kids. Well, you know, let's go for dinner and then we'll go play hockey. They played on the same hockey team. And uh, Cohen's like, well, I have to go home and get my hockey equipment anyhow. So it like it didn't make sense. So he did go home. He turned them down. And then he went home. And of course, they were they were business partners, right? Cohen and Jason. And so Cohen went home and told his wife. And the wife said, well, you know, he's your partner. And, you know, why don't you go out with them? You know, we're fine. And, you know, glad to see him. Da, da, da. So he grabbed his hockey equipment and phoned him and said, OK, let's go. Where are you? So then he arrives and it's like, oh, yeah, hey, we got to go check on Lindsay. So, you know, their stories conflict again because that was the, you know, we have to go check on Lindsay. But meanwhile, out of his mom, who speaks mainly for everybody, and she's got a convenient, well-thought-out little story for everything, um, was, oh, he has to deliver documents for her to sign. And, of course, when I point out realtors don't sign, oh, well, there were time constraints. I said, well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it was just, it's all bullshit. And we know based on witnesses in the neighborhood that Lindsay did meet with a couple, male and female, outside of that home, shook hands. Her body language indicated that she was meeting them for the first time. But of course, we don't really know. This is based off people looking out their windows, right? Well, yes. So it appears the couple were in the house. But there's also thought about who else was in the house waiting. So as far as the witnesses are concerned, I I spoke to one of them personally. So when everybody says, and and again, you know, it's 14 years, so we've had time to overanalyze everything. None of the witnesses knew Lindsay. So who says it was Lindsay standing there? It's 5.30, and in Victoria, that's dusk. And it was a cloudy, drizzly time, I believe, or certainly dusk. So if you're driving by, walking by, the person I spoke to was driving by. And so what they saw was maybe one to two seconds as they're driving by casually, glance out their driver's window, see three people, they look back at the road. So... Was that Lindsay? I questioned, and it was, there were three people standing there to the best of their recollection. And it looked like a greeting or a meeting. So some of the stories out there, I don't know where they came from, from one, 
police, I suppose. Think about it. You're driving down the street. You don't know people. So how can they say, yeah, that was Lindsay standing there? They don't know Lindsay. Uh, they did a Crime Watchers video portrayal of that. And um, I questioned the police. I went, why did you use that actor? That didn't represent Lindsay. Well, what do you mean? So well, Lindsay was five foot two and a half, 99 pounds. Mm -hmm. So you can picture what that looks like. The actor they used was probably five, five, 150 pounds. You know, was that on purpose or was that reality or what? I don't think people, the witnesses, the police claim they have, can 100% identify that was Lindsay standing there certainly the one I spoke to couldn't it was like driving in the van on the other side of the street away from the house glances over looks back not thinking hey there's a murder going on here just happens to glance over as they're driving it was 2008 but was there any CCTV did any of the neighbors have video surveillance as far as I know nothing the only TV we have is Jason opening the door for Cohen to get into his Range Rover. When was the last time you saw a 26-year-old or whatever he was at the time guy opening a door on a Range Rover that has door openers for his friend? Um, so, you know, why? what would he open the door for Cohen for when they were leaving SHC? Like he walked over and opened the door for Cohen. Like, guys don't do that. I mean, most guys nowadays don't even open doors for females. I do still, but I'm an old man. Does Shirley talk to you or is it like Jason? Shirley is an evil, nasty woman. In my experience and my opinion, she has tried to be friendly with me at times, but only to manipulate she will get frustrated that I can't be manipulated. And then she lashes out and calls me names and hollers at me and tells me I'm evil and blah, 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 blah. She is just nasty. She is one of these people who is portrays an image of uh, together and friendly and smiley when she wants something and then when she's not getting it she's nasty piece of work and behind closed doors where nobody can see her she's one of the worst women i've ever met in my life and i grew up with uh, an extremely abusive second wife of my father and so i experienced that for many many years how evil some people can be and uh, Shirley has topped even that one, in my experience. Thank you for listening to the first part of our coverage on the murder of Lindsay Buziak. Thank you again, Mr. Jeff Buziak, for joining us for this miniseries. Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes regarding this case please take a moment to give True Crime Twins a five-star rating and positive review on your preferred podcast platform. You can also keep up with us on social media 
We're on TikTok and Twitter at True Crime Twins and on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast. You can also email us with case suggestions or anything at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com. 